This morning, uh, Moni Kalade is going to read scripture for us. Thank you, Moni. Good morning, church. So we're reading from the first book of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, and we're reading through from verse 3 to 9. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless in all the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. May the Lord bless his word. Thanks, Moni. May the Lord bless this word. Speak to us, we pray, Lord, through your word. Amen. Well, Advent, it's on us. It's um We've been talking about it for a while, but it still feels kind of sudden. Um, you might uh, have already received that email from from Pastor Graham. That'll point you to some of the resources that are available. But as he's mentioned, there's more um, to come. Um, if you've already managed to kind of jump on board with that, as uh, Pastor Graham said, I know there's some people who've already grabbed uh, the book. You'll know that uh, this morning we're talking about thankfulness. And we're going to the passage that Moni has just read for us. And um, so really, I mean, every time I go to Scripture, it's interesting to me. Um, but it's one of those passages, when I first look at it, I'm sort of like, what's going on here? Is there, is there enough here to preach about? There's some encouraging words. What's the meat of this passage? Paul opens up. By saying these words, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to us, notable, that Paul is doing something very Christian there. um, Something that was radical, uh, though we may be familiar with it. He's putting God the Father and Jesus on the same standing, in the same place with that greeting um, and you'll recognize this as the, the, nearly the very beginning of this letter. So there's a sense in which what Paul is doing is going through some sort of pro forma parts of a letter such as they'd write them in the ancient world. But he, he's, he's doing something new too. He's mixing, we can see, uh, a little bit of Greek culture. It was common to say grace to you at the beginning of a letter with a little bit of Jewish culture by saying shalom or peace to you in the name of God the Father and God the Son. And he 
goes on to say in the next section of letter, the letter which often in, in those days was sort of uh, about um, thanking uh, the gods for the safety of the person that you were writing to. So in the, um, in the Greek world, uh, you know, you might thank someone other than Jesus and God the Father. You might thank one of the gods of the pantheon. But it was sort of a, a bit of a formality almost to say, in the same way that we'd say, you know, I hope it's well with your health, they'd say, I hope the gods smile upon you. Um, but Paul says, and I think with a bit more integrity and a bit more gravitas than that, he says, I always thank God for you because of the grace that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, considering the occasion of this letter, that Paul as a sort of father figure is writing to this young church in Corinth, it's kind of remarkable that he is thanking God for them. Uh, If you were to read on in this letter, you'd find that Paul is addressing this to a church, a Christian community, that is up to some rather unchristian things. If you were to read on through this letter and it begins to emerge from the very next chapter, there's a list of problems. Um, But it's a church that has a real problem with discipline. It's an undisciplined church. And one of the major problems that Paul addresses in this young church is that there are divisions or cliques in this church, which should be a rather unchristian thing. And they seem to run along kind of economic or what we might think of as class lines. There's the well-to-do in the church, and they're kind of worshipping in one way. They're coming around the table of communion in one way. And then there's the less well-off, and they're kind of relegated to a substandard worship experience, a substandard place in the community. There's also, if we go on, a pretty disturbing case of incest uh, that Paul addresses in this letter. There are members of this church suing each other. Doesn't sound particularly Christian. There's sexual immorality. There's some kind of super spiritual worship war going on in the church where people are taking liberties and kind of imagining that God's working especially through them and they're not in sync with the rest of the community. And last but not least, there's some significant doctrinal issues in the church, including many of the people in the community are rejecting, and this is no small thing, a belief in the physical resurrection. So we're reading a letter to a pretty messed up church, or is it just a sort of pretty regular (laughs) church? Whenever I come uh, to read one of Paul's letters for uh, a sermon and its preparation. The question is always there, whether I actually get to uh, this in any effective way. The question is always there, well, what's the application for us in another church, in another place, in another time? And so I end up asking of a passage like this, is this at all comparable to my situation, to our situation, to the situation of the Christian community here in Brisbane, maybe beyond, to the church in our time, in our world. And once I get to the point of beginning to make some possible connections, 
The Corinthians' problems might not be exactly our problems. But maybe they're not as different as I'd hope they might be. And a sobering thing. Uh, If I was a little more sober, maybe I could say sober. Actually, I'm sober. (laughs) Except for in that Holy Spirit way, of course, as a good Pentecostal pastor. Um, it's It's a sobering thing, right, to kind of go, is there anything sort of equivalent to a lack of discipline in our church? Well, of course not here in Cornerstone. We always offer those caveats. Um, but, but maybe. Is there anything equivalent to division amongst economic or class lines? Is there cliques in the church? We might not, I would pray, here ever, but more broadly in the church, we might not see incest as a huge problem, but there's a challenge when it comes to our sexual ethic, our sexual purity, us not using sex wrongly over and against each other for means that don't point to and do something good. I was reading, um, unfortunately, of another Christian leader uh, who had a, something of a fall, or would seem to, this week, um, and all parties involved were shutting things down. No one was admitting to anything. No one was naming any details. And it was clear that the lawyers on both sides had gotten involved. Really difficult to do confession, contrition, to seek justice once the lawyers get involved, potentially. One party saying, they've ruined my reputation, I'm suing them. Surely there's never any worship wars. Surely there's never any problems of doctrine. But of course there are. So why, if we go back to the church in Corinth, I seem to be, sorry, wind stuck off the thing. If you could just click on the slide again. Why would Paul say that he was thankful for this group of believers misrepresenting the good news, misrepresenting the one who brought it. Well, he goes on. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. What stands out to me about this as a reason for Paul's thankfulness, apart from the fact that it's not entirely clear to me how it um, makes him thankful for the church in Corinth, is that he seems to be affirming a quality of the Corinthians church that actually most scholars would tell us was at the root of some of the problems that they were having, at the root of some of the trouble that Paul goes on to address. You'll see that he says something about the gift of their speech and the gift of their knowledge. If you go on in this book, in this letter, in fact, you only have to go as far as the very next chapter, you'll find this famous section where Paul talks about how when he came to the church in Corinth, 
He didn't come with eloquent speech. Does anyone remember that, that passage? Ever heard that preached? He didn't come with eloquent speech. He came with this important message, but he didn't speak it in an eloquent way. There's something a little bit ironic about that because um, there's... <laughs> Paul's something of a communicator, and yet he says he didn't come with eloquent speech. The background to that little section and that passage is that the Corinthians liked to think of themselves as pretty sophisticated. And it was a significant city in that part of the ancient world at the time. But one of the ways that they felt that they were sophisticated as a city was that they considered themselves to be something of uh, a town of connoisseurs of communication. Now, if you go to New York or to London, you'll, uh, or, you know, to any major world city, you'll find that um, people from those cities are often proud of an element of their culture, whether it's literary. If you go um, to, to, to London, they're very uh, proud of the theatre scene, for instance, in the West End. It's a mark of how well they're doing, how much they've attained culturally. For the Corinthians, and this was something that was going on culturally in the world at the time, they didn't go to the theatre, they didn't go to concerts. What they went to do, and it might not sound like that much fun for us these days, is to listen to great orators. So they would go and hear debates they would go um, to the equivalent of the theatre where someone, often a travelling kind of expert or orator, would come into town and they might recite part of, you know, Homer's works. Or they would um, deliver, you know, stirring political addresses. To be able to do that in the ancient world, firstly, was a sign that you were educated. If you were educated, one of the most important things that you could learn was to be a great orator or a great public speaker. They used to, in these schools for elite young men, because it was only men that got into them, they used to actually practice having debates on topics that they didn't have any sort of prior prep on. So like, uh, okay, Charlie, uh, I just said it was only men, but Charlie, uh, you're going to have a debate with Brett and you are going to be on either sides of whether Australia should become uh, a nuclear nation. And we could have some insight into all the money and prestige that had gone into their preparation in the fact that they could just go bang like that and argue for or against something as complex as that. So the Corinthians kind of felt like They'd heard all the best speakers in the empire, the, all the best orators in the empire come through. And actually, oftentimes, because that was the value of the culture, it became equated with virtue, actually. So uh, you might uh, say a correspondent sort of version of that in, in our culture is we really esteem beauty and youthfulness. And if someone manages to say strong and fit and, and beautiful into their middle age and beyond, there's something... We might not say it, but there's something good <laughs> about them. Our culture says they're good because they get opportunities that the rest of us mere mortals don't. But in that context, if you're a great orator, you're probably 
a good person. And the Corinthians were discerning, or so they thought, in this regard. They didn't just know a good speaker when they heard one, because they listened to the greatest speakers and minds of the empire as they came through Corinth. They generally felt that they knew a lot more about most things than most people. Funny that Paul would go there. Why is this some sort of reason for him to be thankful for them? How might (laughs) these qualities of the Corinthians, and to quote Paul here, confirm the testimony of Christ amongst them? Because, Paul says, you have been enriched in every way with this testimony of Christ confirmed amongst you, he goes on to say, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm in the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, says Paul to the church in Corinth. He is faithful who called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Paul is doing in this section is he is connecting the fulfilment and the perfection of who the Corinthians were, these gifts, so-called, with the fulfilment of God's plan in Jesus, in the revelation, he says, in this passage of God... uh, in Jesus. What he means by this is the the day of the Lord or the second coming, the scripture often says. So that time when Jesus comes in fullness and the fullness of his good plan is revealed, then these things in you, who you are as Corinthians, will be perfected. Though the gifts, Paul calls them, that they have the way that they are as Corinthians, the way that they are culturally, what they're into is a complete mixed bag. It's not an entirely good thing who they are as Corinthians, what they value, what's going on in their culture. Paul says, despite all the trouble that it's causing, that at the point of the fulfilment of God's plan through Jesus Christ, they will be, And this is underlined in my notes, so let me underline it for you. They will be blameless. The mixed bag of who they are. At the point of the fulfilment of God's plan through Jesus Christ, they will be blameless. What's Paul doing here? For some of you, maybe it's getting a little bit clearer. If I was sitting in the pews, maybe not quite yet. So I want to share a little story with you that I hope will bring some level of clarity. In our house, there's a lot of excitement about the coming weeks. There's excitement about Christmas Day. Even uh, nearer, there's excitement about the end of next week when holidays begin. There's excitement about Boxing Day, hanging out with the cousins, watching the cricket. And for us in particular, the Newington Juniors, there's a lot of excitement about a holiday that we're going to take. This is one of the kids' favourite books. Uh, is it at your house, Jenny? Or you? <laughs> so they often get to read it with their 
uh, grandmother Jenny when they're around at Sharon's parents' place. Now it's about a road trip. It's called Are We There Yet? Is that right, Jenny? It's missing just one kid for it to be uh, a true reflection of our family, but there's quite a lot going on there that, that's similar. And yes, were you just saying that woman looks like Sharilyn? The, man, <laughs> the man's got more hair than me, but that woman uh, does remind me a little bit of Sharilyn. So it's a funny thing that, uh, I mean, we... Let me own it for myself. I'm, I may have forced it on Sharon to a degree. For me to relax, I need to go away from everything. Like, um, if I am sleeping with nothing but kind of canvas or material between me and, and as wild as it gets, and particularly water, that's where I kind of reset. I never sleep as good as I sleep when I'm sleeping in a tent by the beach or a lake. It just... You know the word recreation? It recreates me. <laughs> I feel like a new person after just a day or two of doing that. There's a certain irony in it, though, that I'm never more stressed <laughs> than that day before we get there. Mm-hmm. Can anyone identify with that? I mean, particularly when you kind of go a little bit off the beaten track, it's just really important that you take what you need and generally, you know, work's going to push me right up to the Friday before Christmas and then we're going to roll through uh, the festivities and, and, it, and, and then I'm just going to be doing this psycho pack in six hours. Um, Cheryl, and of course, um, does most of it. She does the really important things. I just put the surfboards on the roof. Um, but it's stressful. It, it's stressful and, and without fail, in the midst of that stress... My children will climb into the car at least an hour before we actually leave. Has anyone had that experience before? I think it just seems to be one of those things that kids do. They will get into the car at least an hour before we have to leave. And what will happen in there? They'll fight. It's the, it's the pits. It's the worst. They climb into the car. Cheryl and I are madly scrambling around. And they're climbing over the seats and stepping on things. And they're getting into scraps about who's sitting where and so forth. And you just know that they're going to be sitting, trapped in that car for the next six hours to get to wherever we're going. And they're going to be complaining within 20 minutes of getting onto the road. Or they'll need to go to the toilet or whatever. You know the deal. It's really annoying. It's, it's, it's really annoying. It's one of those situations where I struggle to kind of keep uh, sanctified, keep a lid on it. You know, and I may even, and what constitutes stepping over the line for me, because it's a lie, it's one of those lies that parents tell, is I'll say, listen, if you guys don't get out and do something useful and stop fighting... It's off. <laughs> We're not going. And of course it's a lie because you've spent months planning this thing. You've paid a whole lot of money. And even more important than that, I just really want them to have that holiday. No matter how annoying they are, how immature, what level of ratbaggery they embody that morning. It's just so important to me that we get there. We're committed to going. The only thing that 
keeps me from completely losing the plot with them. And this is something that I have to do. I have to step into this. I, I could miss it too. I have to remind myself. And this constitutes my reminding for the 2nd of January next year when we're leaving, doing exactly this. The only way I can keep a lid on it and not just go ballistic on them, maybe tell that lie about us not actually going on holidays, is to put myself in their shoes because the reason why there was such agreement about this as a phenomena in the room is I think it's as old as time. As, as long as people, at least as long as people have been jumping in the station wagons or four-wheel drives, kids have been doing that. I'm pretty sure I was like that as well. Just so excited for where we're going to get. Not particularly tuned in to the stress of my parents. Not particularly aware or even capable of being aware of all that has to be done. I was just the same. I'm sure their kids will be the same. I'm sure <laughs> possibly their kids will be the same should the Lord not tarry. Snuck that in there. That's a Pentecostal pastor thing to say. I have to occupy their world. I have to kind of take a little dose of humility <laughs> and remember the experience of my kids and remember why we're doing it. And that, my friends, is what Paul is doing in this passage. The reason he's thankful for the Corinthian church, and he says it quite cle clearly at the start, even if it gets obscure as you try and unpack it, He's thankful for the grace that has been made known to them by God through Jesus. Paul can be thankful for this messed up community in Corinth because he understands grace. And he understands grace because he has been a recipient of grace, right? He knows. <laughs> he knows not so long ago he was on a mission to kill Christians he was as far from Jesus as he could be in that. And God arrests him. And God uh, reveals to him the goodness of his plan, not just for the Jews, but for all people. And God doesn't care <laughs> about the long list of everything that Paul had done that should disqualify him from being probably the primary messenger of the good news. But God says, we're going somewhere. I choose you to help us get there. All that you've done wrong, forget about it. Let's just move forward. Let's go where we need to go. Paul starts from that place. He operates from that place. A revelation of grace. He sees in the church in Corinth that God is doing a good work in them and will be faithful to complete it. That, my friends, is grace. In the same way that I'm resolved in my heart, no matter how bad things get, the morning of the 2nd of January, that we are going on that holiday 
That's where we're going. Eurega. It's just too important to me that my kids get there. It's a, it's, the decision has been made. The he, our Heavenly Father was like that for the church in Corinth. You said you identify with Jesus, you paid some cost to be in the community. No matter how messed up it is, we're going somewhere. <laughs> the tickets are booked. God is faithful and so he's committed to that messed up community the same way that he was committed to Paul. Paul can be thankful for that community because he lives out of a revelation of grace and he's urging the community in Corinth to do the same, to live out of a revelation of grace, chosen. Your future is good, so much better than Christmas. Christmas is going to be great. Lake Aragon, Red Cliffs for my family is going to be great. Paul's saying there's an even better future beyond that. At which time, no matter where you're at, if you're in the four-wheel drive, if you're on the bus, if you're a part of this community, if you continue to identify with Jesus and accept his grace, you'll be perfected. You'll be blameless. God will accept you into every good plan that he has. That is a cause to be thankful, isn't it?